morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in my apartment, La Chateau T-Dot, here with Samson on the southwest corner of Durham, North Carolina. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. You might notice from the, the size of this podcast, the length, that something is a little weird. And what we're going to do is actually in the middle third of this podcast, we have a, okay, it's kind of like a, a round table of sorts. Uh, basically, it's a, an interview with two of my friends from undergrad, two guys that are very uh, tuned in politically. So that's going to be the political segment. Uh, I'll introduce you to Dave and James. You all have heard of them before. Uh, a few episodes back, probably about a month or two now, uh, I mentioned that we were recording early because I was going to a going away party for James, who's off at Harvard being educated and whatnot. Uh, so they're actually going to be making their first guest appearances on the pod. And then in our back third of the episode, we're going to have a brief Law 140 on citizen warrants, the ability to take out criminal charges against somebody uh, yourself, as opposed to having the police do it. Now, last week, I promised you we would have a Law 140 on the rights of students that are in school. So what we're going to do is I want to make sure you get that. We're going to have a bonus episode later this week where that's all I'm going to talk about. It's just going to be a bonus law 140 on student rights. Uh, but I wanted to have something shorter so that we can still have the interview with Dave and James while not going too wildly over our typical podcast length. Uh, before we get into the meat and potatoes of everything though, make sure you join the conversation online. So we are on Twitter at Fiskemall, that is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you want to leave us a comment, you can go to our website, Fiskemall.com, F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. You can also join our Patreon community, that's Patreon.com slash Fisk, Patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. Also use that as the hashtag, hashtag F-S-C-K, if you have any questions that you want us to answer in a future episode. So as I mentioned, we're going to talk a little bit of politics with Dave and James, so I'm not going to go into too much of it in the main part of the podcast. I am going to mention two stories. Uh, one is regarding our beloved Papaya POTUS, Donald Trump, uh, and his role as the Cheeto-in-Chief. So about a week or two ago, uh, we had four Green Berets who were killed in Niger. They were helping out local forces there, trying to defend against uh, militants. They were ambushed by about 50 ISIS fighters, and uh, four of them are dead. Three of those were actually stationed here in North Carolina, down at Fort Bragg. And the president has had absolutely nothing to say about it. He didn't say it in any of his tweets that he's had about the NFL and the First Amendment and everything else. Uh, didn't talk about it in his weekly radio address where he talked about the importance of saluting the flag. Uh, and it's not come up. And when the bodies came back to America this past week, uh, the Cheeto-in-Chief was out golfing. This guy is a total fucking disgrace as president. He's been a disgrace since he's been sworn in. He continues to be a disgrace. And I still feel a certain kind of way for everyone that voted for him that we are having to deal with this bullshit and this abject failure for at least another three years. So that's the uh, that's the federal story. I do have a story in North Carolina I want to talk about. Our Attorney General, Josh Stein, uh, tweeted out an announcement that he is joining a lawsuit being filed by several Attorney Generals, or Attorneys General, rather, uh, out in California, trying to stop an executive order by Donald Trump 
cutting off payments, uh, reimbursement payments to health insurers as part of the Affordable Care Act. As part of this, uh, Stein tweeted out, quote, I am suing President Trump for his unlawful and reckless decision to stop payments that help half a million North Carolinians afford health insurance. My problem with this is that it's a waste of time. It is a waste of the department's personnel, time, money, and here's why. So there's a case in the uh, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals called House of Representatives versus Price that the U.S. House filed back in 2016 contending that these payments that Trump is supposedly stopping uh, were unconstitutional, or rather they were illegal, not unconstitutional. They were essentially uh, arguing that President Obama made these payments based on unappropriated money, uh, essentially shuffling his budget around, and used that to reimburse the insurers. And the district court that heard that case agreed. They found that the appointments were illegal. From the court's opinion, the court says, quote, the court will enter judgment in favor of the House of Representatives and enjoin the use of unappropriated monies to fund reimbursements due to insurers under Section 1402. So that opinion the court stated pending appeal, which is not unusual. Courts do that often. And that's been in front of the Court of Appeals for several months now. Any resolution that's going to happen is going to happen in front of the Court of Appeals long before anything in California is even heard. But it's one of those things where if, let's say for the sake of argument, it makes sense for the attorney general to get involved in federal health care policy, focus on that case. File an amicus brief or something. You know, the Circuit Court of Appeals allowed the states to intervene when uh, Trump won because Trump was not going to continue fighting this particular appeal. So the states are basically stepping in uh, in place of the Obama administration. But this whole notion that we're going to go join this California lawsuit and think that's going to make a difference when whatever gets decided is going to be preempted by this D.C. Circuit Court case and whatever that ruling is. Because if the Circuit Court affirms the trial court, which is likely, then there's no payments to stop. Uh, Trump's executive order is going to be a nullity. But instead, you've got an attorney general that just a couple months ago was claiming that budget cuts to his office were curtailing his ability to, to meet needs for North Carolina taxpayers. Stuff was going to go undone because of those budget cuts. Now, spending time, money, and energy chasing this story out in California when really it's more about getting people to vote for him when he's up for re-election in a few years. It's stupid. Anyhow, so that's it for the political piece on my part. You will get more politics here in a minute when we go talk to uh, Dave and James. But before we get into that, of course, we have got to go through the criminal justice news. So in court news, the Supreme Court has granted certiorari in the case of McCoy versus Louisiana. And the question there is going to be whether a trial counsel can concede or admit a defendant's guilt in a murder case, uh, even when the defendant objects. So essentially, when you have homicide cases, they're divvied up into two parts. The first is the guilt phase, whether or not you actually did it. And then there's a punishment phase where they decide whether or not to give you the death penalty. And in this particular case down in Louisiana, the guy that stands accused said that he did not want his lawyer to admit that he committed the crime. He insisted on his innocence. Uh, the lawyer said, you're totally fucking crazy based on the evidence. We know you did it. You're delusional. Told the jury that he did it. Uh, and the jury found him guilty, of course, as you'd expect, but then also ordered him to uh, get the death penalty. So the New York Times has a write-up on the details of the case. 
the Supreme Court just granted cert a couple weeks ago. So it will be interesting to see how that decision turns out, because as weird as it sounds, that's not something that has been considered before. So there have been cases in the past uh, where the court has held that lawyers aren't required to affirmatively get a client's permission to admit that they've done something. Uh, but they have not considered whether it's constitutional to have a lawyer do something over your objection when it comes to making admissions. Uh, in general research news, Cato, the uh, Cato Institute, has a poll out uh, that essentially confirms that Republicans are still batshit crazy on First Amendment issues. Uh, 72% of Republicans think it should be illegal to burn the flag. That's not terribly unusual. Terrifying, but not unusual. Um, half of those think that the punishment for burning the flag should be losing your American citizenship. Jesus Christ. Uh, and then 36% also think that you should be banned from ever criticizing the police. So we will give you the link to that story in the show notes. Uh, that's something where, as we joke about uh, campus liberals and progressives and how they want their safe spaces and everything else, Republicans aren't any better at defending the First Amendment. It's fucking sad. Uh, the Prison Policy Initiative has a story out where the uh, employees who work for telephone providers at the jails, so companies like GTL, Secure, Century League, Telemate, that sort of thing, uh, they are big-time donors to sheriffs' races where the sheriffs decide uh, what providers those jails are going to use. So, for example, they note from their uh, reviewing some donation records that GTL and Securus gave $70,000 to Alameda County Sheriff Greg Ahern I'm probably screwing up his name, sorry. Uh, gave him 70 grand over a four-year period. So that's one election cycle because these guys are elected to four-year terms. So they gave him $70,000. And the thing to keep in mind is that that might not sound like a lot of money when you're accustomed to seeing congressional races going for millions, but sheriff's races are local. So 70 grand is a ton. You know, you look at a judicial race here, and it's not unusual to see someone spend 20000 and that's enough to win. So you're talking 70000 Good God. Uh, so I'll give you that link as well. The Guardian has a story out. A new study was done by Harvard researchers comparing the Guardian's database of killings by police in 2015 and matching that up with the, uh, the National Vital Statistics System that's maintained by the CDC. And what they found is that more than half of all killings by police officers, so these are people executed without due process, have been intentionally mischaracterized in the system as something else, misclassified. Uh, they found out, for example, that 100% of the people killed in Oklahoma uh, were listed as some other cause of death as opposed to being killed by police. So this highlights the need for more accurate data on how many people get killed every year by law enforcement. You can't figure out how to address it if you don't even have good data to talk about it. Uh, this is why I also highly recommend killedbypolice.net. It's an excellent website. It tracks all police killings nationwide, including links to the details. And you can see we average roughly three and a half people, three, somewhere between 3.2 and 3.5 uh, people killed by police every single day like clockwork. So check that out. Uh, out of The Intercept, the uh, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Handbook on Civil Asset Forfeiture has been leaked and among the highlights, it turns out that they don't use civil asset forfeiture to deter crime or get rid of the profits of crime. They do it to make money. 
One of the quotes says, as a general rule, if total liabilities and costs incurred in seizing a real property, that's a piece of land, uh, or business, exceed the value of the property, the property should not be seized. They're using it to make money. Because if your goal was actually taking away the proceeds that facilitate crime, you'd seize all of it regardless. But instead, they only want you to seize the stuff that they can turn a profit on. So we'll give you that link as well. So in the state-by-state news, we've got a lot. Uh, Out of California, in Oakland, there's a story by Elizabeth Nolan Brown in Reason uh, regarding Celeste Guap. So this is a girl who's a daughter of an Oakland police dispatcher and had was basically sexually abused by multiple cops in the department from when she was a, a kid. Um, so from the story says, quote, Celeste Guap, the daughter of an Oakland police dispatcher, was sexually exploited by local cops from a young age and had been paid for and or extorted into sex with dozens of Bay Area officers by the time she turned 19. Uh, however, this is the that's the background. Well, several folks were charged with uh, various sex related crimes, uh, and some of those guys are getting away scot free. Also from the story says, quote, Judge John Rolofson dismissed charges against former Contra Costa County Sheriff's Deputy Ricardo Perez and Alameda County prosecutors dropped their case against Oakland officer Giovanni Laverde. The reason why is that supposedly these people didn't know that this underage girl was underage. Now, pause that here. Ignorance of someone's age is not a defense in North Carolina or most other states. If you commit some kind of sexual assault, rape, whatever else, the fact that you thought she was older than she actually is doesn't matter. doesn't help you. You still get convicted unless you have a badge. Uh, Also, the uh, story continues... The OPD, this Oakland Police Department, has fired four cops over allegations related to Guap. Twelve other officers were disciplined in other ways. Another committed suicide, and a longtime police chief was forced to resign. Think about that. So you have, that's four, plus 12 is 16, plus two more is 18, plus the two in the story is 20. you got at least 20 officers that either participated in or knew about the sexual exploitation of a minor in the Oakland Police Department. And it's just been going on and on and on. That's insane. Uh, Out of Orange County, the State Bar of California has recommended a minimum of one-year suspension of the law license for former District Attorney Sandra Lee Nassar for deliberately withholding evidence from the defense that happened to be exculpatory. But what's interesting here is that the bar noticed not only in one particular case where she did it, but found two similar cases of prosecutorial misconduct. And the court noted that Nassar didn't care, said she'd do it again. Uh, The court says, quote, one issue that distinguishes the president case from the others is Nassar's lack of insight and understanding regarding her own misconduct. This court found deeply disturbing Nassar's testimony that she would engage in the same conduct again. In her capacity as a prosecutor, Nassar's lack of insight on the subject represents a tremendous threat of future harm to the public and the administration of justice. This woman needs to never be a district attorney anywhere ever. Uh, Over in Colorado, in Alamosa County, uh, the ACLU of Colorado has done a new study called Justice Derailed, and it's on Colorado's municipal courts. So apparently they have like city courts that deal with low-level criminal offenses. Uh, We don't have that here in North Carolina. Like you have a county court uh, or there's judicial districts essentially – but they're typically at the county level for bigger counties. So, for example, Durham County is Judicial District 14. Wake County is Judicial District 10. 
all of these districts are under the state administrative office of the court. My understanding from this report is that Colorado's got kind of a bifurcated system where you have the state courts that deal with more serious misdemeanors and felonies, and then city courts that deal with traffic tickets and low-level misdemeanors. Uh, But essentially, these are functioning as... Uh, debtor's prisons in a nutshell. I mean, there's got a story of one guy where he got a speeding ticket, had to come to court on nine separate occasions, and was threatened with jail because he couldn't afford to pay the court costs that were associated with the ticket. Uh, They're basically running debtor's prisons, and each of these city courts is run exclusively by one particular magistrate judge. Uh, It's the, the gist I'm getting from this. Anyhow, it's a long study, worth reading. Colorado's a mess. We'll give you that link in the show notes as well. Uh, Over in Georgia, in Atlanta, two-year-old A.J. Dickerson was born without kidneys. He uh, he needs a transplant. Turns out his dad is a 100% match, uh, but dad is also on probation. So the hospital has decided they will not allow the transplant surgery until dad has been compliant with his probation terms for at least three months. I don't have anything to say there. That's nuts. Uh, Over in Spalding County, holy shit. So in Spalding County, Georgia, the sheriff's department has arrested five people in a racially motivated murder of Timothy Coggins. Turns out that murder happened way back in 1983, 34 years ago. So that's bad enough. So these five people who helped kill this guy have been living scot-free for 34 years. But here's the kicker. Three out of the five who are arrested work in law enforcement. Two of them are police officers, Sandra Bunn and Lamar Bunn of the Milner Police Department, and one is a jailer. Uh, He's a sheriff's deputy, Gregory Huffman, with the Spalding County Sheriff's Office. Holy shit. You got five people who helped kill a black guy. Three of them are police. So that's in Georgia. Over in Louisiana, while we're talking about uh, racially motivated things here, in Caddo Parish or Cadu Parish, however the fuck you pronounce it, uh, Sheriff Steve Prater had a press conference where I was going to give you the audio, but I've got other audio clips I got to work in, and I don't know if we're going to be able to get all this together because I'm, I'm doing this piece of it in my apartment. Um, and I, I trust Mike, but Mike's already overworked as it is. Uh, essentially, this guy, so Louisiana has new prison reforms that are going in place because they're spending a shitload of money to incarcerate a shitload of people. Louisiana locks up more people per capita than anywhere else in the country. It's nuts. And and actually, I think I saw somewhere where they lock up more people than anywhere else in the world. Well, as part of these reforms, they're going to be releasing more nonviolent offenders. So the sheriff, Steve Prater, had a press conference where he starts out going on an extended rant about people that are being released. One guy, he says, was arrested like 34 different times. Now, keep in mind, those aren't convictions, which tells you if he's getting arrested 34 times and those aren't convictions, the problem is on the front end with the police. But we're going to let that part slide. But then, as he's going on this rant, he distinguishes what he calls bad inmates, those guys like the guy arrested 34 times, and what he calls the good ones. So this is an exact quote from the press conference. Quote, in addition to the bad ones, and I call these bad, in addition to them, they're releasing some good ones that we use every day to wash cars, to change oil in our cars, to cook in the kitchens, to do all that where we save money. Well, they're going to let them out. Well, guess what, Sheriff? That's called slavery. 
I realize that Louisiana is accustomed to having inmates run its business, but that's slavery. That got abolished with the 13th Amendment. Now, those of you who've seen the documentary 13th will know there's actually an exception written into the amendment for uh, you're allowed to be a slave if you're convicted of a crime. But still, that's that's fucking disgusting. You know, I don't know if y'all remember, and I don't even remember, frankly, when it was. I think it might be the third Rule of Fisk episode. But one of those old podcasts, we had a tweet thread by Sam Sinyangwe where he talks about the economics of incarceration and the fact that being able to have inmates working without paying them saves states millions of dollars and having to pay them even minimum wage would bankrupt the budget. This is, this is an example of that. You know, and the sheriff claims that he was taken out of context and he never said the word black and everything else. He doesn't have to because Louisiana locks up as many people as it does. They also disproportionately target minorities. So if you look at the arrest statistics and the jail statistics, they're mostly black and brown people. He didn't have to say it. It's so explicit in how they target folks. You don't have to come out and be explicit with your words anymore. So that is in Louisiana. I'm going to give you the link. I want you to listen to the full full uh, press conference. It's totally fucking insane. Uh, i got two stories out of Maryland. In Baltimore, Baltimore police detective Mamudo Gondo is now the fourth, the fourth officer to plead guilty to federal racketeering charges. Uh, there's a story in the Baltimore Sun says he's admitted to, quote, robbing and extorting citizens, billing for overtime hours he didn't work, and falsifying reports to conceal his crimes, all part of a growing scandal that has ensnared eight officers and toppled the city's elite gun unit. But it gets even worse. Turns out Gonda, who's only 34, also pleaded guilty to helping protect a North Baltimore heroin ring that police said was responsible for more than 60 fatal and non-fatal overdoses. Uh, so that is in Baltimore. Again, what I'm going to now christen the fourth rule of Fisk, uh, The Wire was a documentary. Uh, in Col- I'm just kidding. I'm not actually going to make that the fourth rule of Fisk, but I've said it enough times. We really should. Uh, over in College Park, Professor Jason Nichols, who w- works at the uh, University of Maryland, uh, went on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News, and they talked about Columbus Day and mentioned that Columbus helped exterminate a lot of people. Uh, so Nichols said that Columbus was not exempt. He wasn't an exemplar of American values, which I don't think there's much dispute among that unless you happen to be uh, whatever fucking nationality Columbus was. I don't even know. Um, well, it turns out one of the listeners decided to leave him not one, but two separate voicemails. And I'm going to play you a clip of that one. And I got to forewarn you. The language is strong, listener discretion is advised, and you know it's bad if you're having to get that warning on my particular podcast. But I'm going to play you about 40-ish seconds of it. Here it goes. Seconds. Mailbox 51158. To listen, press 0. To delete, press star D. To skip, press the pound sign. Uh, this message is for Jake, uh, Jason Nicholas. I've been listening to him on Fox. So... You know, this fucking nigga, you niggas are not going to be satisfied until you change every fucking piece of shit holiday to nigga day. Okay, you can have it. Let's change Martin Luther King, nigga day. Christmas, nigga day. Columbus, nigga day. He's talking about uh, Columbus bringing and killing 200,000 people. What about the fucking camel niggas that got the nigga blood in them? The terrorists, the fucking Syrian Muslim piece of shit, ISIS nigga terrorists. Well, don't you give a shit about them? 
And this woman went on and on and on and on and on so much that the voicemail actually cut off at about the four minute mark. And she fucking called back and left him another four minutes of the same type of shit. So I'm going to give you the link because I want you to listen to the whole thing for two reasons. One, it's important to recognize that people like this still fucking exist. You know, we like to pretend that outward racists are some, you know, narrow piece of the country. It's only the Nazis marching in Charlottesville or whatnot. It's not. It's actually pretty fucking common. People just don't have the balls to say what they think about it. And now that we've got the kimchi Klansman as president, those hoods are coming off. But I also listened to the whole thing to see if she gave up any clues about who she was. And you will be shocked, shocked to find out that this woman was a probation officer. She actually says in the middle of her voicemail rant amid the N-bombs and the F-bombs and everything else that she's a probation officer. This fucking woman was in charge of dealing with people who had been released from prison, and it was up to her to decide whether or not they would end up going back. And when we talk about things like structural racism, that's the type of shit that we're talking about systemic institutional racism, you've got a woman who thinks like this and has not only thinks that way, but thinks so highly of herself that she leaves eight minutes worth of a tirade on a college professor's voicemail because she's pissed off that he decided to say something about Christopher Columbus on Fox. You know, that type of mentality, being in charge of probation, uh, is a problem. It's a huge problem. So we're going to give you the link. It's part of a Facebook live feed that Mr. Nichols put together, uh, or Dr. Nichols. I don't actually know what his credentials are. I didn't look him up. I probably should have. I know he's a professor. So we're going to call him Professor Nichols for now. Uh, but I want you to listen to the whole thing because it's important to face down that type of evil, recognize that it exists so that they can be properly shamed. Down in Mississippi, school administrators in Biloxi have banned To Kill a Mockingbird from the school curriculum because, quote, it makes people uncomfortable. No shit. You know, it's interesting to me for a couple of reasons. One, not only did I have to read To Kill a Mockingbird as part of my, I think it was sixth grade in my case. Uh, it, so that was still elementary school back then. Now it's middle school. But uh, we not only had to read To Kill a Mockingbird, but it was required reading for law school. It was part of my law school orientation because there's a lot of complex stuff in there that, you know, actually happened. This notion that you could have a white woman fabricate what took place, blame a random black guy, the black guy gets convicted, you know, that happens, still happens in 2017. But what does it say about people in Mississippi that they're uncomfortable by a book, but they're not uncomfortable about the numerous Confederate monuments in the state to people that actually believe in things like fabricating crimes and blaming them on random black people? You know, if you're uncomfortable by To Kill a Mockingbird, but you're not uncomfortable about a Confederate statue, we've got a problem. Uh, over in Missouri, so public defenders are now declining cases uh, because the Supreme Court suspended a veteran public defender, saying that in at least six separate cases, he failed to provide adequate counsel. And that was rooted in the fact that he had so many pending cases at the same time. Uh, turns out the, and this is a quote from the story, quote, the state's 370 public defenders handle more than 80,000 criminal cases a year for indigent clients, an average of 216 cases per attorney. Numerous studies that have looked at the Missouri public defender system say it should have nearly twice as many lawyers to meet standards set by the American Bar Association for the minimal amount of time needed to adequately represent clients. 
to give you an example, me personally, I'm in private practice. I don't do any public defense stuff. Uh, I've got around 120 cases in any given year, and that is a blend of criminal stuff and uh, civil stuff. So that's, and I feel like I'm overworked and I got to have Marissa here to help me out and make sure that things keep going. I can't imagine having 216 cases covering both misdemeanors and felonies. That's nuts. Well, because of this, they're in a catch-22. On the one hand, you have the legislature refusing to fund more attorneys where they have to take clients that are assigned to them or a district court judge could hold them in contempt. And then on the other hand, you've got the state Supreme Court saying that if you take these clients and fuck up, we're going to take your law license. Uh, It's an untenable situation in Missouri, and something's got to give. Over in New Jersey, in Cliffside Park, an unnamed school teacher is on video telling her students, quote, men and women fighting are not fighting for your right to speak Spanish. They're fighting for your right to speak American. Uh, This was as a few students were talking amongst themselves in Spanish during like the time in between classes. Uh, I got a couple questions on this one. One, what the hell is American? I'm I'm not familiar with the American language because if we're trying to talk about English, a lot of motherfuckers don't know how to speak that properly at all, you know. But then on top of that, you got a lot of citizens that speak multiple languages. You know, my girlfriend speaks Chinese because that's where her parents are from. I've got multiple friends that speak Spanish and English, both fluently, both more properly than uh, your typical American. Uh, And then the bigger part is if the kids are talking during non-instructional time, who the fuck cares? Who cares what language they speak? Have them go fucking speak Klingon. It doesn't fucking matter. If they're not interrupting the class, leave them the fuck alone. So that is in New Jersey, uploaded to Snapchat, of course, made the rounds on social media. Uh, Over in New Mexico, the first rule of Fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. Uh, A deputy was filmed. He's in the passenger seat of a patrol car rolling up behind a motorcyclist with his gun drawn and pointed out the window. Uh, This was all caught on camera and put on social media. Basically, there's a group of motorcyclists who are going down the highway. The police car is speeding up to catch up to them, and the officer has his gun pulled before the motorcyclist even knows what's going on. So you see the motorcyclist look at the police car uh, and basically go, holy shit, he didn't actually say that, but you can see from his body language that he was surprised to see a gun pointed at him. Uh, The statement from the department claims, and this is not a lie, this is an exact quote, claims the deputy, quote, feared for his life. Well, if he feared for his life, maybe he shouldn't be chasing him down with the window down and having his gun out when he's like, you know, however many paces behind him. It's just not even plausible. I mean, they're not even trying anymore. They're just putting the lies in the press releases, hoping that the media buys it without even having something that makes sense. Uh, Over in New York... (laughs) Oh, New York. Good Lord. In New York City, uh, NYPD officer Raul Omeda has been indicted for raping a 15-year-old girl on at least a dozen different occasions and recording it. That's bad enough. Uh, but then District Attorney Cy Vance has been exposed for refusing to prosecute Harvey Weinstein. So this has been a big story over the past couple weeks. Uh, Weinstein is, of course, a big-time Hollywood producer. He's now been accused of various forms of sexual depravity, uh, harassment, whatever else, by dozens of people. It's been like an open secret in Hollywood. Well, it turns out there was an audio recording that was given to the district attorney, and then Weinstein's lawyer came in, turns out big campaign donor, and Cy Vance refused to prosecute. And the the interesting part in all this is that the, um, the story initially 
wasn't gonna. It didn't seem like it had any legs to it. Like people were bringing it up, but didn't seem like Cy Vance would care. But the audio is so horrific, and I'm not gonna play it for you, but just know that it's bad. Um, but it's something where it's so bad that they ended up throwing the NYPD under the bus in a statement that they released on Twitter. So I'm gonna read that to you because you gotta you gotta keep in mind that. It's him covering his ass, but at the same time, it's very weird to have the DA's office throw the pu- uh, the police department under the bus so openly. Um, so here's part of the snippet of what was released. It says, uh, if we could have prosecuted Harvey Weinstein for the conduct that occurred in 2015, we would have. Mr. Weinstein's pattern of mistreating women, as recounted in recent reports, is disgraceful and shocks the conscience. Uh, After the complaint was made in 2015, that's the audio I was telling you about, uh, the NYPD, without our knowledge or input, arranged a controlled call and meeting between the complainant and Mr. Weinstein. The seasoned prosecutors in our sex crime use unit were not afforded the opportunity before the meeting to counsel investigators on what was necessary to capture in order to prove a misdemeanor sex crime. While the recording is horrifying to listen to, what emerged from the audio was insufficient to prove a crime under New York law, which requires prosecutors to establish criminal intent. Subsequent investigative steps undertaken in order to establish intent were not successful. This, coupled with other proof issues, meant that there was no choice but to conclude the investigation without criminal charges. I'd like to know what those other proof issues are, because having listened to the audio, and and now I'm not a New York lawyer, New York criminal defense lawyers can, you know, they're going to be the experts on this, but based on what I heard, my clients would get convicted. You know, that's just just my people. Um, So that's in New York. In North Carolina, Uh, Alamance County police have arrested Thomas Lee Jeffries Jr. because he commented on Facebook about blowing up the courthouse. Now that sounds bad, but so here's the thing. Someone had written on Facebook about taking down the Confederate monuments and there's a bunch of people talking on this thread about it. And his exact quotes are, let's just blow the whole courthouse up. And then he's got three of the, uh, the laughing emojis where they got the squinty eyes and they're laughing and they think it's hilarious. And a bunch of people, you know, on Facebook, you can actually do reactions and people clicked like and the laughing emoji to his comment. It's obvious that it was a joke, uh, but he got arrested anyway. So the arrest warrant, of course, omitted the emojis because one, the software that they use for warrants can't actually convey the actual emoji itself. Normally what you do is you put it in brackets and explain what it is. So it would be laughing emoji with squinty eyes or something to that effect. They left that out, as you could imagine. And the sheriff, Sheriff Terry Johnson, said, quote, We will have zero tolerance against any crime here in Alamance County, regardless of where it is, surrounding the Confederate monument or anything else. This is a very serious business. When you are talking about blowing a county courthouse up, we do not take this lightly. We will not take this lightly. And we will not stand back if you choose to try to attack property and live in Alamance County. This is insane. Totally fucking absurd for a couple reasons. One, it wasn't a threat. If you look at the post and the emojis, it's obvious it wasn't a threat. Anyone with the slightest scintilla of common fucking sense would know it wasn't a threat. But here's the thing, guys. Even if it was a threat, it's protected speech under the First Amendment. Under what the Supreme Court established in Brandenburg versus Ohio, to criminalize someone's statement, it has to meet three elements. The speech has to be intended to produce 
and reasonably likely to produce imminent lawless action. So there has to be intent, there has to be reasonable likelihood, and it has to be imminent. I don't think any of those three are here, but let's assume for the sake of argument that his intent is there because the guy typed it. It's not reasonably likely that people are going to take action based on that, and that part is obvious when you look at the fact that people are clicking the laughing emoji in response to the comment. People thought it was a joke. But even if they thought it was serious, there's no reference to time. There's no nothing in any of the posts or the comments that suggests they're going to go do it right now. That means that any lawless action they were theoretically advocating was not imminent. It's protected speech. This case is going to get thrown out. There's no possible way this guy can get convicted. Eventually, it's going to get thrown out. But then the gutless district attorney, a guy named, where did I put his name on here? Doug Green. So this is the elected DA, the guy who should know whether or not a crime that's been alleged uh, has a factual basis for it or not. Uh, He said he's not going to drop the charges and that whether it is protected expression is for a judge or jury to decide. No, that is not how this works. If you don't have the elements meant for the crime, you're supposed to dismiss it. That's part of your job as a, quote, minister of justice. Uh, But Doug Green is a fucking embarrassment to the district attorney's office in Alamance County. Uh, Over in Mecklenburg, Mecklenburg County has been awarded a $2 million grant from the MacArthur Foundation as part of its safety and justice challenge uh, to try and reform their cash bail system. Uh, Karima Towns with the Fair Punishment Project has the details. We will give you the link to that story in the show notes. Uh, But basically, Mecklenburg locks up a lot of people, and they spend a lot of money locking up a lot of people. So we'll see if they can get some progress made with that grant. Uh, Over in Oregon and Portland, six people were arrested for trying to block access to an Immigration and Customs Enforcement facility. And as part of the arrest, federal police put hoods over their heads and then earmuffs over the hoods. Uh, it's really weird. I mean, it's, it started out on Twitter, and then some of the media picked it up. It's a very bizarre story. It looks creepy as hell. Uh, of course, the police claim that that was for their protection. I'm not sure what they were protecting them from. Uh, but just know that if you protest at a federal facility in Oregon, you could end up in a hood. Uh, in Pennsylvania, in Delaware County, which apparently they call Delco. I did not know that. Uh, District Attorney Jack Whelan used... Uh, civil asset forfeiture money to buy campaign billboards for him to run for judge. So this is from the story in City and State PA. Uh, Emails obtained by City and State PA show Whelan asking his staff to ensure that his name would appear in a larger font size than previous years. Advertising contracts obtained by City and State PA show the ad placements from digital billboards off I-95 to SEPTA bus shelter ads heavily tracked predominantly Democratic portions of Delaware County. Uh, Whelan, a Republican, was a lock for the Republican nomination in the race for Delaware County Court of Common Pleas and was notably campaigning at the time for the Democratic nod in a bid to run unopposed in November. His office halted the advertising, which was paid for in part with civil asset forfeiture proceeds shortly after the primary. Guy spent $53,000 in ads so that he could try and become a judge. That's your people in Pennsylvania. Uh, In South Carolina, in Conway, Bobby Paul Edwards, who is a white restaurant owner of J&J Cafeteria, has been indicted federally for enslaving a black man who has a mental disability for five years. Uh, From the story, quote, the manager would call him racial slurs and threaten to stomp his throat and beat him until people would not recognize him. 
Edwards assaulted him regularly, sometimes taking Smith, who was the black guy, into the restaurant's freezer or back office to keep others from noticing. In one instance, Edwards dipped a pair of tongs into hot frying grease and scalded the back of Smith's neck. On another occasion, when Smith didn't bring food out up to the buffet fast enough, Edwards took Smith into the back of the restaurant and whipped him with a belt buckle. Plaintiff was heard crying like a child and yelling, no, Bobby, please. That's an excerpt from a civil suit that Smith filed. Uh, After this beating, defendant forced Smith to get back to work. The combination of threats and actual abuse made Smith so afraid that he felt coming forward would be fruitless and bring about more aggravated abuse or even death. All the while, Smith lived in squalor behind the restaurant in a roach-infested apartment owned by Edwards. Smith's attorneys described the conditions there as subhuman, deplorable, and harmful to human health. We have bona fide slavery taking place in the private sector still. So slavery with the government is bad enough with inmates, uh, but it's still taking place with private actors in South Carolina. Uh, Also in Florence... School board member Glenn Odom decided to uh, put his thoughts on race on display. Uh, he was at a school board meeting, was trying to find a ride home, and said, sent an email to staff. Uh, says, quote, Would you be so kind as to send an email out to the board asking if I could get a ride? Just don't send it to the darkies. Turns out that there are black members on the school board. Uh, Also in Florence, more than half of the students in the district happen to be black or Hispanic. So again, going back to this whole notion of institutionalized racism, you've got a school board member in a majority minority school district that refers to people of color as darkies. And he's in a position to be a decision maker. Uh, Over in Tennessee, this is an interesting case. So in uh, Wilson and Rutherford counties, a U.S. District Court judge has ordered that the licenses for Fred Robinson and Ashley Sprague be restored. So both of these folks got speeding tickets. They couldn't afford to pay the fines associated with it. And under Tennessee's system, there was no real notice uh, that their licenses were going to be suspended, as the gist I got from reading the injunction order. Uh, And on top of it, there's no consideration for someone who's indigent. And essentially what the judge has said is that type of system is unconstitutional. You can't use the um, speeding ticket apparatus, essentially, to function as a quasi-debtor's prison by taking away someone's license if they can't afford to pay. We'll give you the link to that story. It's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out because the threat of suspending your license is one of the main uh, sticks that states have to try and uh, get you to pay your traffic tickets. And as I've mentioned before, traffic tickets are a tremendous revenue source for states everywhere. Out of North Carolina's top 10 most charged offenses, seven of them are for some form of traffic violation. Speeding, not having an inspection sticker or whatever else. I think number uh, eight is like misdemeanor assault. Number 10 is possession of drug paraphernalia. Uh, All the rest are something traffic related. So that's in Tennessee. We'll give you that story. Out in Utah, now remember, we've talked at length about this story, this case of uh, Detective Jeff Payne, who tried to get blood drawn from the victim of a car accident. Turns out that victim was also a police officer. The nurse told him he couldn't draw blood without a warrant. He didn't have it, so he arrested the nurse. Well, a couple weeks back, he got fired from his part-time job as a paramedic driver. Last week, the police union came out in his defense, saying that they were disturbed by how the whole system had gone down. Uh, Well, this past week, he has been fired as a police officer as well. Good fucking riddance. 
uh, in Virginia. We got three separate stories out of Charlottesville. So the story of the week involved DeAndre Harris. And this was the guy that you've probably seen it if you're on social media. He was really savagely beaten by Nazis and white nationalists in a parking deck at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville a few months back, or a few weeks back, rather. And it turns out he's been arrested. So a, uh, a North Carolina attorney, Harold Ray Cruz, who is one of the white nationalists who was there, claims Harris attacked him at the event. Turns out it didn't happen. Harris was actually in the hospital getting treatment for his own beating at the time, uh, but had what is called a citizen or civilian warrant issued by a magistrate so that he could have Harris arrested. So that's what prompted the Law 140 segment this week. We're going to talk more about that in a second. Uh, also out of Charlottesville, the city has filed suit against the alt-right organizers, uh, basically trying to get a judge to stop them from showing up with guns because they were acting as a military force. And under the Virginia state constitution, apparently there's some type of language that says that the military is exclusively governed by the state and by the federal government. Uh, so we'll see how that turns out. I, I'm not entirely sure that's going to be successful. That's a weird lawsuit, uh, but I'm not a Virginia lawyer, so I don't fully understand how that's all going to play together. Also, interesting story in The Intercept on the Charlottesville Police Department. So there's a defense attorney there named Jeff Fogle, who's about 72 years old, has been criticizing the police and the district attorney's office for years, decided that he was going to run for ZA. And, and you can be surprised to know this, uh, the police decided to arrest him about a week before the primary. Uh, based on another magistrate warrant, case turned out to not be a, a legit thing, but they arrested him anyway. His mugshot got put everywhere else, and, of course, he lost the primary. So we'll give you that story because that's crazy. Uh, so that concludes the state-by-state -state criminal justice news for this week. Uh, let's have a quick break for some bumper music, and then I'm going to get into the next segment where we talk with Dave Fox and James Hankins. And i got to forewarn you again. So this is totally unstructured, completely unfiltered, uh, basically just trying to test to see how these guys liked doing a roundtable discussion of a sort. Um, so don't be surprised by the crosstalk. I know it can get annoying, but bear with us. And in particular, let me know what y'all think feedback-wise. Uh, if y'all like what we discuss and, and how these guys handle themselves on the pod, we'll try and do something a little bit more structured in the future. So here we go. I hope you like it. All right, folks, thank you for tuning in. We are back from the break, and I have with me a pair of special guests, friends of mine from our undergraduate years at NC State. Guys, introduce yourselves and tell the listeners what you do. <laughs> Not all at once, you know what I mean? <laughs> Good, Dave. Age before beauty. Yeah, Dave Fox, hailing from uh, Sanford, North Carolina, currently former insurance man, current nursing student, uh, you know, James and Greg, and we're friends, but it's more like a dysfunctional family. You know, there's people that you only want to see at Thanksgiving, but you love getting drunk with them. So this should be fun. <laughs> on that note, uh, we make sure that we say happy birthday today, today on the day that we're recording this right now. But um, I'm going to say my name is James Hankins. Uh, I'm from Wilmington, North Carolina, lived in Raleigh for the past uh, few years, since 2004. And uh, currently, I'm a graduate student at Harvard Graduate School of Education in the Education Policy and Management Program. Now, you said Harvard with an R. I'm surprised that they haven't kicked you out yet. Isn't it supposed to be like Harvard or something like that? Harvard, Harvard, they're not going to take North Carolina out of me. They, they can try all they want to, but they're not taking <laughs> North Carolina out of me out here. Amen to that. Dave, happy birthday, brother. 
Hey, thank y'all, man. It's always a blessing to see another year. So look, we you you said it best. We're a dysfunctional family. We put the fun in dysfunctional. Uh, I want to start off getting into a little bit about our alma mater because this is the first time that I can remember where NC State's football team has been ranked 20th in the nation. Y'all got any thoughts on the rarity of that? I, I, I got a thought. You know, NC State being ranked is making me a recovering alcoholic because usually around this time of year, NC State is so terrible that we're all drinking ourselves to self-medicate about how terrible they are. So, you know, seeing these guys being ranked, and honestly right now we should be undefeated. So I'm, I'm just happy with the prospects of this, man, especially with UNC always being so good at basketball. Being a state fan, having something to legitimately cheer about instead of like some titles that happened before you were born, it's pretty <laughs> nice. Yeah, I mean, being ranked is like, <laughs> like who would have imagined? Like at the end of the day, uh, we've spent so many years since day one wondering about how good NC State really is at, at these sports. We end up losing games we should win. We end up coming close to winning games we shouldn't, and everybody kind of has a laugh and a punchline about NC State. Uh, but no, you know, it's nice to be re- recognized nat- nationally. Uh, I mean, Carolina, Chapel Hill, they get recognized nationally on a regular basis, Duke as well. So it's nice to have something we can hang our, our hat on for a little bit. Amen to that. Now, look, I know all of my listeners, except for the handful from state, are probably rolling their eyes right now because I don't typically talk about sports. But, you know, sports can get political. As uh, we've seen this past week at ESPN, Jamel Hill has been suspended because someone was upset about the Dallas Cowboys owner threatening his players that if they don't stand for the anthem, they will sit for the game. And she had a tweet that basically said that if that offends you so much, boycott the advertisers. So ESPN kicked her off the air for two weeks. Now, I've not delved into y'all's political views intentionally, but give us some thoughts on what you think about ESPN, and we'll see if the listeners can guess where y'all come from as far as where on the aisle you fall. Well, I mean, for me personally, I guess the biggest thing is I can completely, number one, let's get this off. Let's let's just start this off right. The three of us, I think, are uniformly in agreement about the issue of police brutality, police misconduct. You know, wherever we see that, whether it's the Rampart scandal in L.A. or I think it was John Birch and uh, Chicago or Frank Rizzo in Philly, you know, that's something that we need to address. I think the issue is whether or not this is the best use of the time to have these guys kneeling during the, the, the national anthem. You know, I, a lot of people want to compare it to the 1960s, and I get that. And I think what those guys did, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, all those guys are personal heroes of mine. Um, but I feel like we did that at a time. Dave, you still there? <laughs> I think he accidentally muted his own microphone and didn't oh, even I'm realize back. it. I'm back, back. <laughs> my bad. No, I guess, like I was saying, man, I think, the, I think the big thing, my issue is in the 1960s, we had to have Jim Brown and Kareem and all these guys do this because those were the only people that were really had a, had, a, had a voice. Now, you know, 40, 50 years later, we've had, you know, two and three generations of professional black folks who can really talk and speak to these issues. We've got Michelle Alexander. We've got John McWhorter. We've got Glenn Lowry. We've got Roland Fryer. So do do we really, when we have all of these experts that have done the work, 
why are we farming all this stuff out to, you know, our football and baseball and basketball players? And, you know, number two, ESPN is a business. The NFL is a business. A lot of people don't even know that, you know, the NBA, they have it in their contract that they have to stand for the national anthem. So this is kind of something that's across the board. The NFL is se- they're selling America, Americana. They're wrapping themselves in the flag. You know, a 50-50 idea might do well with Donald Trump because all he needs is 50, you know, 50% of the country to win an election. But for the NFL, you can't really afford to piss off half of your half of your viewers. So that's that's where I am. I'm going to cut you off briefly. I'm going to point out Donald Trump didn't even get 50% to win oh, the election. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's true. He, that's true. That's true. I, I want to make sure we correct that. Hey, like, he, to be technical, he didn't even get a majority of GOP primary voters he got a plurality right to be if we want to be technical yeah sorry Um, james go ahead brother uh, i just uh if you feel like something is is wrong you feel like you're you want to stand up for something that's within your own industry you want to stand up for something in solidarity with somebody else in your industry you feel like there's been mistreated i have absolutely no qualms with you doing what you need to do in order to make that the case and whether that is kneeling whether that is putting a fist in the air, like as we saw JT Brown did uh, in uh, the uh, the National Hockey League recently. I have no issue with people expressing themselves in such a way in order to say they're dissatisfied with something. Now, the consequences that come from whatever NFL owners or the NFL does or whatever ESPN tries to do from that point forward, that's, that's what you have to live with. But I'm not in a position to really say that because we have a more educated class of black folks that other black folks who feel a certain way about something shouldn't stand up for what they particularly believe in. And on top of the Jamel Hill thing, I just think that it's funny that ESPN hired Jamel Hill and Michael Smith to come on the six. And then all of a sudden wanted them to fall into respectability politics and be these, you know, well coughed black folks that are safe for everybody to watch when that is not who Jamel Hill has been throughout her career. That's not who Michael Smith has portrayed himself throughout his career. And we were upset and, and mad. And you want to you want to suspend somebody for saying something that really, at the end of the day, wasn't that egregious. She didn't tell people to protest. She gave, she told people that if they felt strongly about something, they had the right to protest. And so that's it's funny to uh, to to see like the the comparison between how ESPN treats Jamel Hill and then you have Shannon Smart Shannon I'm sorry Shannon Sharp on Fox um, with his black and milds. And 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 making new, new and, and the honey. henny. He's got the henny too. He's got the henny. Like and and that and I have no. I have absolutely no issue with Shannon Sharp portraying himself that way. I, I have an issue. Yeah, but, but I have listen. an issue with ESPN deciding that Jamel Hill, somebody they hired and they know who she is, deciding that she should be suspended for something that wasn't even that egregious in the first place. Well, I, I will say, as far as I'm my bad, Greg. But I'm just saying, I'm not saying that those guys shouldn't stand in solidarity to for issues that they believe in. I am with that. I am for that. Jim Brown, what he's done with our I can Jalen Rose starting uh, a, uh, a charter school in Detroit. I salute all those brothers. I, I'm just saying that provocative displays like this. I'm not surprised that the sports leagues, which are trying to sell to middle America, you know, I'm not surprised right. that they might say, you know what, this is bad for the bottom line. Right, right, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't, and, expect, and, you can't expect them. You can't, and, you can't expect them to. You can't expect them to say, let let's join in with this social movement and move forward with it when they know the people that are buying buying the jerseys 
or you know people that are not going to support these causes and ideas i'm not i'm not saying that you know the the nfl or any of these other large sports uh, organizations are in a position where they need to support these or acts i'm sorry expect them to support these players but I, I just feel as if it's it's classic to see them not uh stand in in support of a lot of these athletes who make them so much money but but james i think about how lazy it is for the news media to sit here and basically say you know what we're going to do instead of going to all of these people who have who have literally have volumes of work on the subject we are going to go and talk to ray lewis and see what he has to think about like like really but they only do this with these issues with these specific issues when it comes to violence in the inner city or the the only time we're going to go to athletes and entertainers is on this nobody goes to athletes and entertainers as authorities on reproductive rights right you're not going to ask wayne gretzky about health care but and we, and we should and, and we and we shouldn't be and we shouldn't be looking to antonio brown on stop and frisk right but what i'm saying is look at floyd mayweather on domestic violence right well i don't just i don't i don't disagree with the fact that these are the, the, the questions that they're asking these athletes are beyond the pale compared to questions that they would ask anybody else but if i'm if i'm one of these athletes in this position I have a right to one, be educated myself, and two, be able to express myself in such a way to make sure that people understand that what I'm seeing out here is is wrong. The systemic institutional racism that continues to per, uh, permeate this country is is wrong. And if they're going to ask me, then I'm going to have to answer that question. Otherwise, who else is going to come to that, that conclusion? That, that's true. But I got I got two things on that. Number one, it's when you turn when when the workplace becomes a political gauntlet you're going to divide people and esp espn and the nfl are not selling that so it's not Bullshit. surprised they're going Bullshit. to be put no hold, well, on, I, hold on hold on I, 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 I don't think they're selling that professional sports are deliberately political you've got stadiums that are funded by taxpayers the only reason the teams are on the field for the national anthem is because starting in 2009 the department of defense paid the nfl to have the teams on the field teams used to be in the locker room back in the day what are they what are they selling they're They're selling america they're wrapping themselves in the flag and selling america and selling americana Brother, selling Americana in that context is political. When the government okay. is paying private industry to get their headliners on the field as the flag is out there, hoping that that's going to lead to a boost in recruitment, that's political. That's always political. Okay, I, I'll give you that. My, I guess my biggest thing is, what, number one, what is the limiting principle? Like, what is the end goal? And number two, are, 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 how long do you think the NFL – and ESPN are going to continue to hemorrhage dollars based and 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 be consumed with this. But look, NFL and ESPN were hemorrhaging dollars before this ever happened. ESPN it's- was because of cord cutters. NFL has always, for the past decade or so, been the number one uh, cable cable show out there. Absolutely, but they've also been losing viewers because you got games five, six nights a week, and they've been going up against other spots. Like you know, there was a Thursday, a Sunday night game against Game of Thrones. You know, people are gonna go watch Game of Thrones instead of watching two mediocre teams out of however many you've got in the league playing a mediocre game. True, you know, so NFL can still be. Day. Go ahead. Go I'm ahead. just saying the notion that the the loss of money is somehow tied to uh, these protests just doesn't make sense. I mean, you got you got Ray Rice knocking a woman out in an elevator. 
You got Ray Lewis killing a motherfucker. You got Roethlisberger, Ray, Ray Roethlisberger, whatever the fuck you want to call him, raping somebody. Ray Lewis you know? did not kill anybody. Ray Lewis, Ray Lewis is accused of of, of not ratting. <laughs> Ray Lewis was was accused of of I think it was obstruction of justice. But he was never accused of murder, man. Regardless, my point is this: you have got dozens, literal dozens, of NFL players who have been convicted or accused of crimes for which there's ample evidence. And no one gave a fuck. The idea that they suddenly started giving a fuck because Colin Kaepernick took a knee to protest police brutality just doesn't doesn't hold water. Doesn't make any sense. No, 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 no. I'm not. I, look, I, I, we, we you're never going to. I, the NFL is going to always be in trouble once it tries to be moral arbiters and all this type of stuff. I'll, I'll give you that, that. This is honestly. Let's let's be honest about this. There's a whole lot of people in this country who just feel uncomfortable talking about racial issues, especially when it relates to African-Americans and systemic, a, a history of racism. But nobody wants to really confront the American caste system in any serious way, especially when it interrupts their sports. So it's get we're, we're talking about it, some real issues, but it's affecting the bottom line for those guys. And, 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 my, and my other point is James and I was talking about this. I was saying to these brothers, if they're really serious, man, serious, you could ten of those guys could come together, find some local candidates in places like Philadelphia, where it's like fifty percent black, and, and and max out individual contributions. I mean, that would be that would be huge. But look, if I had to pick between these guys finding politicians to finance and doing what Colin Kaepernick is actually doing, which is taking his money and supporting the youth and other programs to help people get jobs and whatnot, I'm gonna pick that instead of really? having more people I, going I into the political system. But look, since you brought up America's caste system, <laughs> let's talk about our first white president, the billionaire papaya POTUS, Donald Trump. You know, now, Dave, you're a Republican. You're the only Republican yep. on this podcast so far as I know. Uh, no, nothing has changed since I've been, <laughs> I've been up here. <laughs> I've been in this bubble, this echo chamber for so long up here. There's nothing that has changed at all. So, yeah, I, I was going to say, Dave, James Dave definitely is the only Republican on this podcast right now. I, I didn't know if James was going to switch when he's all up there with the New England liberals instead of the North Carolina <laughs> liberals. You know what I mean? <laughs> but no, seriously, how do we deal with the fact that you've got a guy who clearly is a beneficiary of the American caste system, but at the same time is manifestly unqualified to do the job? And he's got three more years in office. I think it's, I mean, I think it's ultimately, I think it's, this is probably one of the most frustrating periods in, I know in my lifetime for sure, in my short lifetime, I know it's a time period in which I find that people that I love and respect have kind of lost their way or have allowed the adversarial nature of politics in general. I'm a Republican, you're a Democrat, I'm this, you're that, has created these divisions that have allowed people to be blind to what somebody has done or what they're not doing. And I have an issue with the idea that if I'm a Democrat, I'm supposed to stand lockstep with whoever my president is, whoever my uh, representative is, et cetera. And I think that we have gotten to a point that we are in such a, a, a huge conflict with one another based on our titles that I think that we have a lot of people in, in Dave's party who support a guy who is neither conservative uh, nor a Republican, really, when it comes down to what he's doing and what he's trying to do. So I think that part is frustrating. I'm not just talking about Republicans. I'm talking about Democrats as well and 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 how Democrats have kowtowed to a lot of people who've been corrupt and a lot of people who've been, fr quite frankly, terrible at a job. We saw that in North Carolina quite a bit with the good old boy system having 
been perm a permanent almost a permanent fixture for fixture for so long in that state. So Jim Black, Meg Scott Phipps, Frank Balance. Yeah, the list goes on. Yeah, it goes on, and, and, on. And, and not to mention the forced sterilizations of many poor and black women, which is just a, a, a disgrace. All right, Dave, keep going. You started. Well, no, I guess my biggest thing is, look, if 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 small government conservatism and federalism gets replaced with ethno-nationalism, then there's no future for the Republican Party. And, and quite frankly, it shouldn't be. Um, I became a Republican because I was already a conservative and I didn't feel as though there was any any home for me in, in the Democratic Party having conservative values. Is that um, a dog in the background saying bullshit? Because that's what I'm hearing. No, nah, that's the dog barking. <laughs> but no, I, I, that, that's what I truly believe. I think we had so many people. Uh, if you remember the primaries, Donald Trump just turned off so many Republican voters. There were so many people who said, my God, OK, you're going to attack Carly Fiorina's appearance. You're going to accuse Ted Cruz's wife. You're going to uh, talk about Ted Cruz, Cruz's wife's appearance. You're going to say that his father killed JFK. Now we're going to talk about a Mexican judge who <laughs> who uh, who isn't fit to rule on a case because he's a Mexican. I, all of that is disgraceful. And but the party I backed him anyway. No, the party backed him because because the his because he won the nomination. I mean, is it disgraceful or is it not disgraceful? Or is it only disgraceful up until we get some benefit out of it? I mean, I think I've already said it's disgraceful. I think, and you two both know that after that really ridiculous response to the uh, the, the events in Charlottesville, I sent out a letter to party leadership outlining my issues with that, outlining my issues with the alt-right. Richard Spencer, Steve Bannon, those guys aren't conservatives. These guys are, they, 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 they believe in big government, but they just want big government to work for a very small number of people. And, you know, if, if that's what conservatism is going to be in the 21st century, then it doesn't have a future. What kind of response did you get from the party leadership on that? Good. I, I got very good, good uh, responses from a lot of them. I, I had some obfuscation from some. And um, look, I, number one, I, I think it's important that we have all sides being represented in all parties. I don't think it's good for any party to be devoid of black folks, to for one party to be devoid of religious folks. I think there is room in both parties for all different types of people, for all different types of perspectives. And I think that, you know, people like Bob Corker, even people like John McCain, who I, I vehemently disagree with, I think they are to be applauded for standing up to this president because we can't applaud bad behavior just because somebody decides to have an R beside their name and vice versa. We shouldn't, Democrats shouldn't do that either. But it's interesting you mentioned McCain and Corker. Both of those have announced that they're retiring. Is there anyone that actually has the spine, the balls, whatever verbiage you want to use to stand up to a sitting president who's clearly unfit for the job? That remains to be seen. I think people are so afraid of their political lives. They're so afraid of their political lives. They saw that they, Donald Trump tapped into some sort of movement, some sort of, 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 of movement of, of, of views that, that they themselves may not necessarily hold, but they know that the core and the base of, the, of their party um, in some of these areas are people that they have to get support from or Bannon's going to run <laughs> a primary challenge against them. And I, I think that there aren't any, I haven't seen anybody 
with enough spine. Like maybe Jeff Flake. I mean, this guy's running for re-election or whatnot. Uh, so maybe that's a person that you could point to. Uh, maybe somebody like Rand Paul who could care less about what people think about him because he's, I guess, a libertarian. Um, so you have these folks who, who, who have here and there said these things that have challenged the president with where he's been and, and, and some of the more racist and, and vitriolic things that he said about people in this country. Uh, the Bushes but, have also challenged him. I think I also remember basically every member of the foreign policy establishment on the Republican side coming out and saying this is not a good idea from, you know, the former director of the NSA to the former Homeland Security director. I mean, there have been during the primary, there was a lot of opposition to Trump. The, the issue is it's very hard to mount an insurgency against a sitting president of your own party. Well, the, I, the, I, I've never seen the, it done. The problem I have, the problem I have is when the rubber hits the road in 2018, are some of these people that have stood against the president going to stand against the president? Or are they going to let him stand beside him, beside them and elicit, you know, uh, donations in large crowds when he goes to visit their states in 2020, when he may or may not be the nominee at that point, depending on how much he continues to screw up, are they going to stand with the president? then against whatever presumptive Democratic nominee there might be and challenge him at that point. No, because we live in a country that continues to see itself as side against side, as this this party against this party. I have my flag. I'm going to wave my flag. I'm going to carry my flag, regardless of who's right or wrong in these scenarios. And we're never, I don't, I, and I never is a strong word, but I, I, I'm more and more discouraged day by day in seeing that people are willing to Put themselves in their own little silos and not allow themselves to expand their thought process or their knowledge beyond what their party or what their supposed political beliefs tell them they should do and how they should be. But, but, I, I, I think Trump. I think Trump exacerbates that feeling. He's he's created that division uh, uh, that's that's existed even more division that's frankly always been there, but now he's made it so that that vision is okay to put on public television, to put on social media, to make your own personal views seem as if they are more right than somebody else. Well, James, let's talk about your side. So I think Dave would probably characterize your party as the party of godless heathens and a bunch of other stuff. You know, I mean, it, that's fairly accurate. But I, I, I do want to challenge, challenge James and, and you on, on one thing. I, I think that I look at somebody like John Kasich, who has stood up against a lot of the foolishness of the, of the president, people like Lindsey Graham, people like Tim Scott. I, I think, I think the the issue is, is you you it's hard it's very hard to oppose a president, a president who's a member of your party. I think you're just going to have to take him on issue by issue by issue, and hopefully, so as somebody that's very good will challenge him in the primary for 2020. I mean, I think it's the best you can hope for. And hope that that competent people stay in the administration because crises do happen. All those people that said, "Well, you should," everybody of conscience sh shouldn't work for the for for the Trump administration. I'm sorry. Well, are, are we gonna are we not gonna have a country for the for the years that he's here? I think we need as many talented people that are willing to work for him to do so. I'm gonna to, say to for avoid problems. I'm gonna say for the record, someone from the Department of Justice in D.C. encouraged me to apply, and I said, "Fuck no, I'll be damned if I work for Jeff Sessions." But look, let, let's well, stay on the James. Well, so, so, so we shouldn't have a FEMA director. We shouldn't have a we shouldn't have a competent Secretary of State. I mean, I mean, yeah, we should have those things, but they should be competent people capable to stand up to a president that doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. Hey, look, if Rex Tillerson of all people 
has the spine to call the man a fucking imbecile. The spine and the IQ. The spine and the IQ, Greg. <laughs> Let's pull out the IQ test now. Look, the fact that he's willing to call the president a fucking imbecile and do the job that he's supposed to do, you know, to me that that in my mind makes me respect Rex a bit more than I would have otherwise. Or, or General Mattis, who basically Correct. Yeah. every Matt- week thing, uh, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. But that's but that's another example. So you have roughly three or four people in a cabinet of 17 departments, plus the NSA, plus the uh, ambassador to the UN, plus however many other people. So out of roughly two dozen folks, you got a handful or less that have that type of qualifications to the office. You know, I could give you Tillerson. I give you Mattis. I'll give you Kelly. I'll give you Haley. Pompeo. Yeah. I might give you Pompeo, maybe. Who, who do you? Who's Greg? Who's the? Uh, who do you think is the least qualified cabinet member? Jeff Sessions. Uh, Jeff no, Sessions. Bessie DeVos. Yeah. Bessie DeVos, hands down. Jeff over no. Come on, no, man. I'm gonna take Jeff Bessie over Bessie. Here, here's why. Here's why. So Betsy DeVos, even though she doesn't have the background to be doing education as a bureaucrat, it's managerial predominantly. She's got managerial background. That's fine. The problem with Jeff Sessions is this man is charged to be the nation's chief law enforcement officer, and he doesn't believe in the fucking law. Not only does he not believe in the law, he doesn't believe in facts. He's sitting here. I'll give you an example. So Trump just appointed a new United States attorney. I think it was like the Northern District of Ohio or some shit like that. Maybe it was Michigan or something. Dude, within days, within days, disbanded the Civil Rights Division and created a new division on violent crime, even though by the FBI's own statistics, violent crime is down. We are safer today than we have been at any point in our history. It's been down for decades. Correct. And you're sitting here taking taxpayer money and putting it towards that. As you've got police shooting people in the streets, caught on video and getting away with it, you're letting all that shit ride. You know, Jeff will, Sessions is manifestly you, unqualified. He beat Betsy DeVos by a mile. I will give you that, but I, I, I think if you look at, I mean, I mean Betsy, regardless of her managerial experience, the fact that her answer to every question is the beauty and wonder and perfect <laughs> nature of charter schools and private schools, uh, regardless of whatever educational issue that you bring up. Is it shows you the 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 limits in her um, let's see aptitude for for educational issues in this country. So well, and, and, and what's so bad about it is if you if you believe in school choice and charter schools, there are some good people out there, some qualified people that could have that could have talked about that. You could have gotten Eva Moskowitz. You could have gotten Michelle Ree. I mean, Betsy DeVos, really. But look, don't don't, don't think y'all gonna get me off track. We're gonna talk about the Democrats. James, you're okay. gonna stay on the hot seat. Oh, I'm ready for this. <laughs> oh, I'm, 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 I've already been cooked with fresh grease. So I'm just it's James. <laughs> but I mean, look, you got the party of godless heathens. You right. got the party that thinks all non-public education is evil, even though even public education can be fucked up. You got the party that thinks all businesses need to be taxed and regulated into non-existence. You know, for you to have said earlier that the country sees it as side by side and people don't like that, why is it that the Democrats can't branch out and pick up these disaffected Republicans? Because the Democratic Party is is a shell of whatever it was supposed to be. And whatever it's been over the course of these past few years, I mean, you look at you look at the Obama administration and the, the wide victories they had nationally with 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 having a a, a, a sweeping uh, a w- sweeping wins in two presidential elections as well as as winning the Senate and uh, and and uh, did they win the House too? Didn't they win the House too in his um his, his first election? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you have somebody who's done that, but what kind of leadership has the Democratic Party cultivated from the ground up? 
And that's the problem. Most of the, the legislatures across the country, state legislatures are run by Republicans. Most states across the country are run by Republicans. The Democratic Party has sat there and put their hands behind their head and kicked their feet up and said, we elected Barack Obama. People love Barack Obama. And this country is becoming more black and more brown and more open about the rights of the LGBT community. We are about to sweep these elections across this nation. And they forgot that where elections really happen, where the power really lies and where change is really made or in these local districts and these local elections in these states, in these small towns, these rural communities, where you have to be able to run people that connect with those people in that community. And that doesn't necessarily, that does not mean in any way, shape or form, Democratic Party should accept people who are bigots against, uh, whether it be by race or whether it be by sexual orientation or, or gender, or any of these types of things. They should not allow those types of people to permeate their party as Republicans have. But what they should do is make sure that they are, are going back to that 50 state strategy that Howard Dean kind of uh, uh, pushed uh, a while back that was successful on its surface in the first place where they said, we're going to run people who can be successful in these states and in these districts and, and, and have a national coalition again, as opposed to trying to do everything from the top down. That's such a stupid, such a, such a stupid move on their part to, to think that Obama was going to change everything just because he was Obama. Now, because you brought up Howard Dean, I'm going to have to make a note to Mike, our sound guy, to insert his I have a scream speech in here. So there will be a sound effect in the final version. Mike, go ahead and put it in at this spot in the podcast. Dave, what are your thoughts on that? I I guess, I mean, I agree with a lot of what James has has said. I just think the issue is that the balkanization of America is real. I think people that go to college and move to urban areas versus rural areas, post-industrial areas is a real dynamic. I mean, there's so many people who have never walked on a factory floor. There are are a lot of people, vice versa, who have never left their state or never left, you know, their whatever area, they've never left the Southeast, they've never left the Midwest. And so, when people aren't living around each other, when they're not interacting with each other, it's easy to stereotype and it's easy to caricature them. And so, you know, we've got more gated communities. We've got more people that don't really interact. And that's going to lead to more people just having completely different outlooks on the country. You know? I, I, I think that's, I think, I think some of that is fair. I also want to say that I think the democratic party is also, uh, has taken black and Brown people for granted for a long time. Uh, and, in that sense, they have, again, rested on their laurels of having people in the party like John Lewis, who they can bring out every single time a black issue happens and says, look, John Lewis is a Democrat. You should be a Democrat, too, as opposed to really looking at, again, the systemic institutional racist system that we tend to live in, that we, 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 we have in this country and saying, how can we do something to fix it? Because the truth be told, just like the Republican Party, the Democratic Party is full of systemic and institutional racism that still exists. So, and it, I, I'm, I, I hate that you put me as the representative of the Democratic Party over the past <laughs> few years. I've become more disillusioned with the Democratic Party um, over and over again. I think that that's, that party has a lot of good people in it that could be great representatives for it in the future. But um, no, I don't, I don't necessarily think the Democratic Party is the answer. Yeah, James, we don't need to address issues. The only thing we do is reel, wheel out, you know, these septuagenarian members of the CBC 
and watch Selma. That's it. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> I'm not going to touch that one. I'm going to let the, the, the token <laughs> no, white guy is going to stay out of this. <laughs> no, I, I, I think, and, you know, I think what's happening at the federal level is a disgrace and what's happening at the state level is really, really good um, in, a lo- in a lot of areas because the states, frankly, cannot continue to afford to, to jail all these people. You know, even look at, look, let's look at Mike Pence in Indiana. You know, they had... He's a he was he's a conservative, but when there was an AIDS crisis in his state, he did a needle sharing program because that was what was good for the state of Indiana, and so states by by necessity of not being able to print money, of not being able just to live in eternal gridlock, are going to have to come up with solutions, and you know whether it's municipal bonds or it's judicial reform, the states are where we need to be looking to. Now, I'm going to push back a little bit. So even though Pence did a needle exchange program, you got to remember, he delayed doing it. That's part of why the uh, AIDS epidemic became so bad in Indiana. I'm not sure. I I get your point. I agree. I believe in states being the laboratory of democracy. But at the same time, you've got people like Pence who, as elected officials, fucked up royally, ruined a shitload of people's lives, and then is getting credit after the fact decades later. You know, and let's let's go ahead and talk a little bit about this whole mass incarceration piece, because that, of course, is the main focus of the podcast is something I deal with every day. And it's where that happens all the time, where we make these public policy choices and it chews up, spits out countless thousands of people, particularly poor folks, black and brown folks, etc. And then we do this half ass late to the game changes to try and make it better. And all of a sudden, we're great paragons of civic virtue and making things right, et cetera, et cetera. How do you get around the delay, the fact that you're ruining people's lives now? You're killing people in the street now. You're convicting people and saddling them with felonies now for basic shit like fucking marijuana. We just had on last Monday's podcast, a 77-year-old man got 10 years federal time because federal agents went to his house by mistake. They were trying to go to the house next door. They went to his house and found some unharvested marijuana plants. Like that's fucking insane. But trying to get the political will to change it is so goddamn slow that you're devastating communities until then. Well, I mean, I, I, like I said, you know, we're going to have to think about innovating. I, look, look at somebody like Rick Perry, you know, who expanded the use of drug courts and community treatment centers, centers, and you know, they closed. I think, or was it four prisons in Texas, and they yes. got four more planned co- closures. I mean, by necessity, the cost of incarcerating people is astronomical. Right now, in North Carolina, the cost of incarcerating an inmate is about eighty-nine dollars and thirty cents a day. So that was that, like thirty-two thousand dollars a year. That is too expensive, especially when it's nonviolent drug related offenses. I think the use of drug courts, I think the use of, of treatment centers is definitely something that we all need to be tight taking up and, and putting on the table. And I applaud Texas. Texas also gave us, I mean, as far as, you know, conservatives not offering plans, I, I, I think about that 10 percent, uh, that 10 percent automatic admission Texas did. I mean, there, there are the states are where we need to be looking for good solutions because the feds just ain't coming up with anything. I'll say, I'll say, I, I mean, I, I think that, I think that I agree with the idea that we need to, we need to look at, you know, uh, these men, like the idea that people are in prison for minor drug offenses is ridiculous. Also, look at the school to pr- prison pipeline. Um, 
and look at what we are doing in our schools and what are we what can we do in our schools in order to put people young people in a position so that prison is not something that's uh an option later on for them um you look at practices that people do in schools that instead of suspending a kid for doing something if a kid has a conflict with one another we have restorative justice practices where you keep the students in school but you work to resolve the conflict that they have between each other besides sending them out home for 10 days and what are they going to do for the 10 days that they're not in school they're definitely not studying they definitely didn't come back to the school to pick up their textbooks so that they could do the assignments for the rest of the week so in a lot of ways our school to prison pipeline and the per pervasiveness of that is is something that we need to to address first and i, I think that there's there's a lot of examples of whether it go to whether you go to early childhood education which could be funded uh, in a lot more states at a higher level. And I'm not talking about just Head Start because Head Start has its own issues, but I'm talking about maybe state-run programs in early childhood education. I'm talking about getting, uh, getting rid of the dropout, dropping the dropout rate, I should say, and looking at programs that deal directly with that aspect of things. So I, I think that we have a, a school-to-prison pipeline that we need to address a lot of ways first or in conjunction with policies that, that, that don't put people in prison for things like minor drug offenses and stuff. James, would something like uh, Oklahoma's universal pre-K be like a step in the right direction? Is it, are those some of the reforms we're talking about? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that Oklahoma and Georgia both have uh, these these pre-K programs that are that are very effective. Uh, and it's interesting that states like Georgia and Oklahoma, which are you know fairly conservative states, are willing to invest in early childhood. Yeah, I know, I know. And you would think that more states would 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 jump on that. Uh, but I mean, that's not the case. But I think those types of programs have shown uh, empirically that they have been effective in the long run for a lot of these st students, especially students of color, especially students who are in uh, uh, bad socioeconomic situations or whatnot. Um, I mean, I have I have some people up here that I've met that have, you know, done their own things to kind of highlight how especially black and brown people can can kind of uplift themselves beyond what we talk about when we talk about incarceration I had a, a friend of mine who worked in a prison for a long time taught uh school in prison and uh he's working to go back to make sure he makes some changes there I have another friend of mine she's started her own program where she's looked at uh highlighting educated latinas and making sure that you know people that are are usually disadvantaged uh historically uh see some pride in themselves and pride in their community when we have a president and we have other people around us telling us that we shouldn't be, or we should assimilate, or as Mike Ditka said today, we should be colorblind. Um, and I, I know I will always take my political advice from a guy who, you know, won a Super Bowl and did a shuffle afterwards. So uh, I think that um, I think that we have people that are 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 doing these things in the right place. We just have to highlight them and find them in order to address some of these issues at the ground level, as opposed to trying to change policy again i'm bottom-up person i'm not a top-down guy i do right. want to make one i want to make one correction though georgia a conservative state didn't invest in pre-k it's the people playing the lottery that invested in pre-k because that was all new money as <laughs> part of the lottery true, so true. I, I'm with you. but at the same time we got to realize and north carolina is doing the same thing i don't know about the other states but a lot of them take money out of their education budget as lottery money comes in even though lottery money is inherently unstable because a lottery expense is something that you give up when you get laid off or you go through an economic downturn. And when the state runs out of the money, they basically just say, oh, well, fuck it. Sorry. You know, that was the issue North Carolina had with, uh, was it CHIP? 
the Children's yeah, Health yeah. Insurance Program. Mm -hmm. You know, the state version of that ran out of money one year, and North Carolina just said, hey, sorry, fuck off. And right. kids were left holding the bag because we're routing so much stuff through the government, and there's not enough money to pay for it. So I just had to do that one correction. Dave, you were saying something. No, I, I'm just I, like I'm looking right now at um, the Pew Charitable Trust talking about South Carolina criminal justice reform. And I, I remember hearing about this last year and, you know, them taking an innovative stance, you know, had the, the population decline to 14 uh, percent. So I, I, I'm, I, I'm an optimist on these issues because I, I, I'm just a believer in the process. I'm a believer in people. Um, and when we got people that are, are I think our generation really wants to see things change. And so I, I'm not going to I'm not going to poo poo everything. I, I'm pretty positive about this. But, but getting back to all of these issues in the community, I, I just wonder when society is going to address the root problem, which is the breakdown of the family in these communities, whether it's poor whites or, you know, working class, poor African-Americans, working class, poor uh, uh, Hispanics. You know, I think that's the crux of the issue. Until we deal with that as a community, uh, everything else is putting a Band-Aid on it. Well, I, th I think I think that's I think that's fine. I think that I agree. You know, we've had this conversation about uh, that families, uh, the breakdown of family has been a, a huge issue in a lot of these communities. I think that's harder to reconcile from a policy perspective. And so I think that I would I would start with I'm biased. I'm completely biased, guys. Like I. I would start with education first, uh, so <laughs> <laughs> that's where I would put my money and my effort and my energies first. Uh, but I, I definitely agree that the, um, that the and, and I'm with you on that because I think education gives you an opportunity to get people while they're young. So I'm all for that. I guess my issue is why aren't we as a society talking about those values that served us so well? I mean, Amy Wax recently wrote, I think it was in uh, whatever the major newspaper is in Philadelphia about you know quote unquote 1950s values and she got excoriated for it and meanwhile you know the people that have the lowest rate of divorce and the highest rate of marriage are, are people in the upper income who are college educated a lot of them uh, are registered democrats but we're not talking about those values that can serve people especially that are in poor situation in the working class i think decadence works very well for the affluent people but I think small C conservative values serve those w w of, of meager means a hell of a lot better than what's being offered right now. As soon as I hear 1950s values, my mind. Doesn't we're, we're, not talking, we're not talking about. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. I'm just saying that there. That's that's such a loaded. I, I think there's a. I think that's a loaded way to to, to label it in, in my in my in my perspective. Uh, we can we can phrase it however you like if you want. I, I, okay, I got a, a less inflammatory Booker T. Washington values. Okay, okay, that's, we, that's another conversation. <laughs> that's a whole another conversation. You know it. You know it. But look, at the same time though, how many of those affluent families? are out having affairs or being abusive or whatever else and they stay together out of convenience as opposed right. to you know when i hear 1950 values what i hear is a woman getting the shit beat out of her on a regular basis but doesn't have a bank what are the rates of domestic violence in the 1950s i'm curious well, we don't know because most of the stuff was okay, never right. reported so, and it wasn't a crime but we're just gonna but we're just back going in, to assume back in the 19th 
Well, no, it's reality though, because if you look at the spike with the so-called spike in crime, and I wrote a column for the National Review Online on this, if you look at the so-called spike in crime from the 1950s through the 1970s, the bulk of it was because things that weren't crimes before, like you, rape was not a crime if you were married. You could rape your wife all day long and it wasn't rape because there was a marital defense. You couldn't assault your wife because assault charges were just not brought against husbands. So the spike in crime from the 40s through the 70s was predominantly these new domestic issues that hadn't been prosecuted before. Who, who Whether, is talking about chaining a woman to an oven in, in 2017? That's not what I'm talking about. Only thing I'm talking, I'm talking about dealing with the feminization of poverty, which is very real, dealing with these issues of class in which poor, single poor, uh, a lot of times undereducated women are, are left to deal with and raise children that they're not equipped to do. And, and we're also dealing with a group of men, a lot of them African-American who are, who are in and out of the criminal justice system. If we don't repair that breach, and I don't care, maybe 1950s values was the wrong thing. I will retract that. But if we don't get back to the things that worked for the, 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 I, for people like James and I's parents and grandparents who are able to stay married for 40, 50 years, raise all of their kids. This, this was, this was not the, the, the legacy that we need to be leaving to the, the generation that comes between that comes after us. Well, look, I'm with it. My parents are still married too, but I grew up in a dysfunctional as fuck family. I mean, domestic violence was a normal part of my life. So I'm all, and, about, I'm all about repairing the family unit. You know, I'm not great. talking about, you know, when we talk about, it's only when we talk about conservative values that hey, I want I want to talk about you know bringing the family back together. Oh, so you you want to have the have your woman have the shit kicked out of her every night again? No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about men and women coming together, building a foundation, raising children together. That's all I'm talking about. Women women are free to work. They they bring a lot of valuable perspective to the workplace. I think Title IX is a good thing. I think it's good diversity programs. Are, we have a diverse 21st century economy and everybody should be all in and getting as many people that are qualified to do these jobs to do them, regardless of their race, sex, sexual orientation, veteran status, religion or lack thereof, okay? All I'm talking about is when you have a community where 72 percent of your children are being born out of wedlock and the amount of poverty and the amount of just all social indicators that are being are, are declining and the minute somebody says man maybe we should we should be talking about how to repair the marriage maybe we should be talking about the things that they that people before us got right it immediately jumps to hey let's talk about domestic violence I just, i'm all i'm all for getting rid of domestic violence i'm in, in every in every form whether it be you know a partner-related violence, where there be same-sex violence. I, I, I don't. I'm not for that. I'm talking about rebuilding the black family. I get sick and tired every time we have a conversation. Liberals sit here and poo-poo it. Meanwhile, they stay together and they get married. I just, I just, I just will say real briefly that you know we know for a fact that people that use. I'm not saying you at all. I know you. You you've been my boy for too long, and I know you. You better than this, but you know for a fact that people use those terms and those loaded words in order to send a completely different type of message in order to perpetuate a completely different type of stereotype about the people that they are referencing when they talk about getting the families back together. Amy Wax, a University of Pennsylvania law professor, Jewish, Amy, this, this Jewish 
University of Professor University of Pennsylvania law professor was not dog whistling. I, that's great. That's one person. I'm glad that's you gave an example about. of one individual when you know for a fact that people have used these loaded terms for years and for decades in order to send a completely different message and to perpetuate stereotypes about people who have been disadvantaged forever. People, and I'm not saying, I'm not, uh, I'm not we're saying. not talking about welfare queens, man. We, oh my God, this is 2017, man. I'm, I'm not, I'm not talking. Yes, the Willie Horton ad was terrible. Yes, the hands ad was terrible. But look, yes, the welfare queen moniker was terrible. Let's we should all reject that. I do. Only thing I'm talking about is rebuilding families in these poor communities, which have been decimated by by single income households. But but my point is, can you understand? That's why, all I'm talking. Can you understand? No, why, because it's a deflection. Can you, can you understand why? No, because it's a deflection. Why people sometimes? Take I just said no. In such a way. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> now look, I will say for the folks that are listening to the crosstalk, this is what I went through in undergrad. I had this for four years and I miss it to be honest with you. That's why I had these guys on the podcast. Well, look, we're getting near time. So one of the uh, things we wanted to do to wrap up, I asked these guys kind of what they wanted to uh, suggest. And Dave suggested talking about what we're reading now. And uh, both James and I laugh because he's doing education stuff. I'm doing law stuff and Dave's doing nursing stuff, you know, so we all got academic books, uh, but I'm going to go first. So what I'm reading now is a book by Professor Tom Nichols called The Death of Expertise. And it's basically a book on how in the Twitter era, everyone thinks they're an expert on everything and we trust experts on nothing and everything's going to hell in a handbasket because of it. Dave, what are you reading? Well, I got two recommendations. My first one is SPQR by Mary Beard. It's a brief history of Rome. And if you want to look no more about the Roman Kingdom, Roman Republic, Roman Empire, from Brutus to Rom Romulus Augustus, feel free to check it out. I, I find it very interesting. Second thing that I would suggest to you guys is a podcast. Only one other, that other one, the only one that I would listen to other than Greg's is uh, The Spectator. It's a sister paper to the National Review Online but it's based in England. So if you want to get a feel for, you know, a center right view on European politics, the UK and the Tories, feel free to check it out. James, what you got? Uh, right now I'm reading building civic capacity to politics, reforming urban schools because it was assigned to me. <laughs> <laughs> that is what I'm reading right now. Uh, but seriously, um, I, I think that, um, I think that uh, there's there's a there's a book called With All Deliberate Speed. If if you're not familiar with uh, the Brown v. Board of Education case and the little thing that the Supreme Court added in by saying with all deliberate speed that led to uh, a lot of issues regarding busing in the future, a lot of issues uh, regarding uh, uh, race relations in schools. Um, that is definitely something to check out. People always love Malcolm Gladwell and uh, his podcast. Um, and I think that he he had one recently um, that really addressed why desegregation really didn't work and why desegregation uh, doesn't work. These are all suggestions that I've gotten while I've been here that I've I've kind of been excited about. Um, and one of the food for thought related to the Mac Malcolm Gladwell podcast: Should we have integrated teachers as opposed to integrating students? Wow. Uh, and and that thought process uh, really uh, informed a lot of thinking you know, on my part or whatnot. So. Um, yeah, watch NC State football. We're pretty good. Uh, check that out. Let's, hey, James, we'll you will enjoy all deliberate speed. It's by uh, 
Harvard Law Professor yeah. Charles Ogletree. I read yeah. it. Yeah, it's, it's dope. It's just yeah, yeah. yeah. I, did, I, I read it. I gave it to my father uh, as a gift. My father has a book called What We Blacks Need to Do. He'd be mad at me if I didn't say that. Check it out uh, by James Hankins Sr. I wrote the forward. I was probably 16 when I wrote the forward to that book. So who knows what I said? But he, uh, it's a book that he wrote. Uh, he was former NAACP president in Wilmington, North Carolina. And so he's got a huge uh, uh, wealth of knowledge and perspective on race relations in a city that's had a dark and dangerous racial history. Yeah, uh, Wilmington race riots. First time yeah. you've had a domestic government deposed by the Klan. Yep. Amen. Hey, James, I, I actually got that book, but I couldn't read it because both the letters and pages were black. So, <laughs> <laughs> Lord have mercy. All right. So, guys, if we have any uh, listeners that want to follow you, what are your handles on social media? How can they find you? Yeah, my handle is too. My, my stuff is too raw for y'all. Uh, just check me out next time I'm on uh, Greg's joint. I'm at Mr. Hankins Oaks. Uh, I was a teacher for eight and a half years. Uh, and uh, Mr. Holland's Opus is actually a pretty good movie. Check it out. Uh, but uh, I decided to to snake that name or whatnot. And so that's my public t uh, Twitter account. So, so check me out up there. I got it. All right. Well, James, Dave, thank you both for tuning in. We'll see what the uh, what the listeners have to say after this goes live next week. Oh, but no. I appreciate both of you. We'll have to do it again sometime. <laughs> All right. 10-4. All right. Peace. Appreciate that. So, folks, that was uh, Dave and James. So their Twitter accounts, Dave is at DFoxTheTruth. James is at Mr. Hankins Opus. Both of them will be linked in a, a tweet from the Fiskamall account. So just make sure you're following at Fiskamall. It's at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L, -L, and you can follow them that way. All right, let's go ahead and transition into our Law 140 on citizen warrants. So in the news section of the podcast, we mentioned that DeAndre Harris, the guy that was beaten in a parking deck down in Charlottesville, uh, has been arrested as part of a citizen warrant that a North Carolina lawyer took out by convincing a magistrate uh, that he had actually been assaulted by Harris while Harris happened to have been in the hospital getting treatment for his injuries. So a lot of people thought that was weird. They didn't understand how someone who was not a police officer can have a warrant issued, have someone arrested. And it's actually more common than you think. So we're going to go over the law a little bit of how that works. Uh, but before we get into that, you have to start at the source. The second rule of Fisk, start at the source with the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution. It says, quote, The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So that they're issuing an arrest warrant upon probable cause is the baseline. Now, what does probable cause mean? The short answer is no one really knows. So lawyers, we use words to describe words. There's no mathematical precision here. Uh, but what is often said is that probable cause is an objective inquiry dependent on whether the officer acted on the basis of, quote, reasonably trustworthy information sufficient to warrant a prudent person in believing that the suspect had committed or was committing an offense. The precise point at which probable cause arises is fluid and requires a totality of the circumstances analysis. Probable cause to arrest requires at least some evidence supporting each element of the offense. Now, the key point here isn't what the specific um, 
definition is per se so much as knowing that probable cause is a much lower standard than the proof required to convict, which is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. The role of the magistrate is much less uh, detailed than the role of the district attorney. The magistrate only needs probable cause. If you think of it like a football field, imagine that you're getting across midfield. You're past the 50-yard line. Uh, compared to the DA that's got to get almost to the end zone. He doesn't have to cross the plane, but he's got to get right up to it. So with that all that in mind, the magistrate is supposed to be this neutral and detached party whose sole job is figuring out whether or not probable cause exists to issue a warrant, whether it's a search warrant or an arrest warrant. And the general rule is that private people don't have a right, don't have an interest in prosecutions of someone else. It's not something you normally can initiate on your own. So, for example, there's a case in the United States Supreme Court back in 1973. It is Linda R.S. versus Richard D. It was a 5-4 decision, and it was regarding a Texas statute for child support enforcement. Linda argued that the way the statute was written was discriminatory because it only applied to married uh, parents. So the child had to be born in wedlock, and then if the parents got divorced, there was a child support process there. And she argued that that didn't apply, or, or was discriminatory rather, because in her case, her child was born out of wedlock, and that violated the Equal Protection Clause. Well, the Supreme Court discussed that at length, but essentially they basically threw the case out because the argument was that the statute only provided for the prosecution of a delinquent father. It didn't provide a method to actually get money paid. And what the Supreme Court said was, quote, the court's prior decisions consistently hold that a citizen lacks standing to contest the policies of the prosecuting authority when he himself is neither prosecuted nor threatened with prosecution. Although those cases arose in a somewhat different context, they demonstrate that, in American jurisprudence at least, a private citizen lacks a judicially cognizable interest in the prosecution or non-prosecution of another. So there's another case in uh, the 10th Circuit, Smith versus Krieger, uh, that basically says that the prosecutors have exclusive authority to prosecute crimes and that a private citizen, quote, has no right to initiate a criminal prosecution. So that's the standard. But there's not, uh, it's not a, even though that's the standard, there are always certain exceptions to deal with certain things. So for example, if you look at North Carolina, our general statutes regarding how warrants are issued. It's North Carolina General Statutes 15A, Section 304. Uh, it says, quote, A judicial official may issue a warrant for arrest only when he is supplied with sufficient information supported by oath or affirmation to make an independent judgment that there is probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed and that the person to be arrested committed it. And then in the next portion of that statute, it spells out three different ways that, that can be done. One is by a written affidavit, one is by oral testimony under oath, and then for police only, they can also do oral testimony via video. And that dynamic where there's video testimony, but there's the preface that it's only police, it's presumed in that that the other two options can be non-police people, can be regular citizens. And that's where you get this concept of a citizen warrant, sometimes called a civilian warrant, uh, basically a private party, not part of the government, initiating a prosecution. 
And the purpose of this really is designed to be part of the checks and balances of our government. So if you've got a magistrate that is incompetent, or if you've got police that are incompetent, and you have been victimized by somebody, but they don't believe you, they don't want to try and investigate, your ability to present evidence on your own outside of the normal judicial process is designed to be a check on an executive that falls short in their job. But as part of that, that carries a lot of power. I mean, it carries a lot of weight. Having the ability to issue an arrest warrant for somebody, especially when nowadays that brings with it a lot of collateral consequences because the citation ends up in Google and people can see that you've been charged with something even if the case is dismissed because of the potential for abuse. And that abuse happens a lot. We're going to talk about that in a second. But what has happened is that a lot of informal practices get developed in, at least in North Carolina. I don't know about other states. I assume that that happens elsewhere too. But here in North Carolina, for example, magistrates generally will not do a citizen warrant for felonies. They'll do it for misdemeanors, but they won't do it for felonies. And typically, they will issue a citation for you to come to court. They usually will not issue a warrant for the police to arrest you on site and cart you off to the jail. They have the power to do that. They just choose not to as a way of trying to limit the abuse that can happen. And that abuse often is what you call cross warrants. So if I take out a warrant against you because you assaulted me, it's very common for you the next day to take out a warrant of your own to say that I assaulted you. People do it to intimidate witnesses, to try and get leverage, hoping that it'll make the case go away. Uh, It usually only makes things worse, to be honest with you, but it happens all the time. So the North Carolina General Assembly actually enacted reforms to the citizen warrant process. They go into effect December 1st, where now if a citizen wants to file a warrant, it has to be done in writing, and it specifically addresses um, the types of process that the magistrates can issue. It requires the magistrate to issue that citation to come to court as opposed to an arrest warrant. So in the Virginia case... Virginia statutes have something similar. So if you look at the Virginia Code, section 19.2 slash 72, or dash, I'm sorry, 19.2 dash 72, it says, quote, on complaint of a criminal offense to any officer authorized to issue criminal warrants, he shall examine on oath the complainant and any other witnesses. A written complaint shall be required if the complainant is not a law enforcement officer. So it's implied in that statute that a non-police officer can actually have one of those things issued. And that's what happened in this particular case. So this North Carolina lawyer, who is a white nationalist, was at the Charlottesville thing, uh, had been part of this discussion for weeks on end with his fellow Nazis about how to get back at this DeAndre Harris guy because he had gotten a lot of press because they beat him in the parking deck. And he saw this particular piece of the statute, went to the magistrate, submitted something in writing claiming that he's been assaulted. And because of that lower standard of proof, the magistrate only needs probable cause, that was enough to have the warrant issued. That's going to be a completely different standard than what the DA is required to get to convict. And it's something where if there's proof that Harris was in the hospital at the time, there seems to be evidence of that, the case has to get dismissed. Now, there may still be collateral consequences. I'm not familiar with Virginia law, not a Virginia lawyer. I'll defer to the Virginia lawyers who happen to listen to this podcast. But Harris will not get convicted for the assault charge if there's evidence that he wasn't actually assaulted because there's no way that this particular Nazi can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that 
Harris was the one who attacked him. So I hope that gives you some insight in that story. I know a lot of people were surprised when that came out and they thought that this was intimidation by the police. It's intimidation by the Nazi lawyer in North Carolina who bypassed the police to have the arrest warrant issued. It's a classic cross warrant situation and we'll see in the months ahead how it all turns out. So, folks, that's going to conclude this portion of uh, the podcast, our Law 140. We will have a bonus Law 140 later this week on students' rights when they are searched by school administrators. If you like what you're hearing, please make sure to give us a rating or review on iTunes or Stitcher. Of course, follow the conversation online at Fiskamall on Twitter using the hashtag Fisk. And on behalf of myself and Samson, who's actually not coughed that much, I'm actually quite pleased. Uh, I hope all of you have a blessed week, and I will talk to you next Monday. Take care. (laughs) 